0: Hero worship is an interesting and complicated phenomenon. Even if it stems from a genuine admiration and begins with the best of intentions, it ends up being a double-edged sword. That's kind of a silly metaphor, honestly, because a lot of swords have mastered the art of having two edges, without hurting the person wielding it. More like a sword without a handle? Or maybe a sword with a knife blade for a handle? Anyway, it cuts both ways is the point. It hurts you, it hurts the person you're trying to hurt, It hurts bystanders and a lot of other people you never even realize. Maybe riding a nuke like Slim Pickens would be a much more apt comparison, but it pretty much sucks all around. Even self-aware hero worship that attempts to paint its icons with warts and all ends up dehumanizing its subject in most cases and dehumanizing everyone who isn't the hero as well. That being said, if you heard that Mel Gibson and Clint Eastwood were appearing in a war movie together, you might assume a certain amount of flag-waving would be involved, if not some outright jingoism. Certainly a dash of hero worship, or maybe a couple ladles full, like me with gravy at Thanksgiving dinner. So you'd probably be forgiven if you assumed the same would be the case for a war movie starring their sons. Sometimes the apple does fall far from the tree, but when you grow up eating around the same dinner table, you can't help but be influenced by your parents' philosophies. But then add Mick Jagger's kid into the mix and Richard Attenborough's and Alan Alda's grandsons, and you get a project as rife with cinematic royalty as the daycare center on the MGM lot. Today's film has almost as many second and third-generation movie stars in it as it has actual veterans, and this movie is packed to the gills with veterans. They brought in veterans as advisors. The director is a veteran, and a lot of the cast are veterans. Some of them even lived through the events depicted and are appearing in this film playing themselves. All of this was done to heighten the verisimilitude of the military experience, if not capture it outright as authentically as you can in the medium of cinema, which is a lofty and worthy goal. And by all accounts, they hit the mark pretty well. I also realized that my wording before could be mistaken for a claim that Richard Attenborough and Alan Alda were an elderly same-sex couple with shared grandchildren, which is not the case, but is also now my own personal headcanon. To clarify, their respective grandsons, who are not related, appear together in this movie. The Outpost is the story of the American soldiers at COP Keating who were overrun by Taliban forces at the Battle of Kamdash in 2009. Now, before you write in, I don't know if it's supposed to be COP Keating or COP Keating. Somebody in the movie said COP Keating, but I don't know if that's like inside military stuff or if I'm supposed to call it COP Keating, so I'm calling it COP Keating. Now, I may be an armchair quarterback that's made of actual cookie dough, but it seems to me the only thing more indefensible than their position was the military decision-making that placed a strategic camp at the base of a bunch of mountains instead of on top of one of them. The result was one of the most tragic displays of valor in recent military history, and none of the men involved were the same coming out of it as they were going in. It is absolutely a story worth telling. But is this the movie to tell it? Does it paint these men and their experiences vividly enough to capture their humanity without riding the nuke of hero worship? Or does its dedicated adherence to the facts cost it something in communicating their story to a non-military audience? Join us for these questions as well as a debate over whether or not you can actually burn urine as we discuss director Rod Lurie's graphic 2019 depiction of the war in Afghanistan, The Outpost.
1: Call it in. It's
2: Danger Close.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Danger Close, the war film podcast, and we are covering The Outpost this week, a 2020 film starring Scott Eastwood, Orlando Bloom, and directed by Rod Lurie. This one was about a much more recent film than anything we've covered before, talks about the 2009 battle of Kamdesh and the conflict that took place there. It was written by Jake Tapper and had a very troubled production history. Initially, it was picked up by Universal with Sam Raimi to direct. And when he fell out, unfortunately, the film fell apart. It was then picked up by Millennium Media with Rod Laurie directing it. And that's the film we got today. And it is doing its best to be very realistic, and it actually had a lot of veterans on the team, family members of those veterans who passed away while they were serving. It was a complicated battle during the war in Afghanistan. Critically, this film was received very well. Fans absolutely loved it. It was a big hit with military families, and critics were very generous to it for a good reason. So we are about to dive deep into The Outpost.
2: Yeah, this is uh new to me. I, I didn't even know it existed, so I'm not sure who's responsible for putting it on the list, but it wasn't me and I was excited to see something new that I'd had nothing to, you know, I'd, I hadn't looked into at all. Me? I did it. I put it on the list. There it is. You can blame Liam. Um yeah, I watched it twice just to take notes and really do some research, but uh Liam, how would you where would you see this movie or what 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 made you decide to put it on the list? so
0: i saw this movie uh on netflix is where i came across it for the first time uh and i i i'm probably the only person on the face of the planet who who this is the case for but cuz it's not normally the type of movie that i would seek out uh however i was just sort of like netflix surfing and i was like huh you know, I haven't seen Orlando Bloom do anything for a long time. Maybe I'll give it a go. Uh so I missed Orlando Bloom, and so that's why I watched the outpost. And I was not disappointed. It did in fact have Orlando Bloom in it.
1: He's having a real hard time with the American accent in this one, you can tell.
0: Our outpost, still a target of insurgents. In okay, case he hadn't noticed. Mm, right. Yeah, where was where was he supposed to be from? was he like where is that character from is Is he from a
2: particular state? uh that's a good question. He's definitely american uh he's like playing... I didn't know
0: if maybe he was like from the the mountains of West Virginia or something where like there might just be a like some kind of appalachian
2: let me look him up. He's playing a captain
0: yes
1: maine he's from Maine, <laughs> which is a real hard accent.
0: everybody talks like Orlando Bloom when they're in Maine. It's a rule.
1: Well, I got to tell you, as an avid Stephen King fan, who, where almost all of his books are set in Maine, and as an audiobook listener, that is not the Maine accent. <laughs> it's a very, very uh, interesting accent.
0: Nope. that's It's canon now. Everybody in Maine talks like Orlando Bloom.
2: I just couldn't get over the fact that, like as legolas in what 2001 he's like this kind of androgynous um just super young looking elf and i was like oh some men like get more and more handsome with age i'm not sure if the age is looking that great on orlando bloom's face (laughs) like I, i definitely did it didn't seem like uh yeah, it was just strange to see him. And and I feel like I oh, – you know what? I'm sorry. 2001 was Black Hawk Down is what I was thinking of in terms of like the difference. Um, but yeah, it was interesting to see. It was change. it was both
0: things. They both came out uh,
2: in 2000. Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, yeah, and just as a preface here, like, you know, we're going to talk about a bunch of different things. We'll obviously be joking around about the actors and whatnot. We understand that there's a very serious subject here and that many, many people died in this battle. So – um We're certainly going to talk about that and talk about how that happened and and who they were. Um, But yeah, none of our poking fun is directed at anybody who lost their lives, obviously. Just people in Maine. Right, people in Maine. It's interesting, too, that I was looking a little bit into Tapper's uh, book and exactly how things went down in real life. And uh, one of the first things I noticed is that they kept so if you watch the movie all the way till the end they do a montage of the people who lost their lives uh and the people who won the major awards kind of the survivors and the people who were killed in action Um, which originally I was gonna like actually read on the show. It's just too long of a list, and the film does a really good job of displaying them. So we'll mention some of them here and there, and I wrote them all down, but you should go see that for yourself. And then if you stick around in the credits, um, some of the soldiers are interviewed later about the making of the film because they were involved. And so one of the interesting things that they chose to do narratively is a time compression here. So, uh, Benjamin Keating, who was a lieutenant at the time when he was 27, when he died, did die in a truck accident, um, the way it's shown the road, this really treacherous road, um, for, for whatever reason, he insisted, I think he just wanted to take the dangerous jobs, a young lieutenant didn't want his troops, you know, to do that, they could, you know, be riding or be security or, or be in the Humvee. And the road collapsed under his truck. And he was ejected from the vehicle and the truck rolled over him. And that's how he died. That was two and a half years before this battle. So...
0: And like none of the guys had actually... Like the main characters of the movie... Most of them weren't serving at that outpost at that time. Yeah, they never crossed if, paths.
2: If any of them met, it was somewhere else in the army because, you know, at, at two and a half years, it's not going to be the same people. So, um, so he was promoted posthumously to captain. He, he died when he was 27 as a lieutenant. And in the film, his character is just Captain Keating and he's in charge of the outpost, which was not the reality. That's fine. Again, you kind of compress characters and time and do things for the narrative.
0: Is that a common thing for posthumous promotions in the military? I know you weren't army, you were Marines, but.
2: That's a good question. Um, promotions do happen after, like not in a standard way. Sometimes we talked about uh, Arlie Ermy in Full Metal Jacket, and he is the only Marine that I know of to be promoted after retirement because he retired as a staff sergeant and he did so much to promote the Marine Corps that the Marine Corps literally called him up and was like, we're going to give you a meritorious promotion to gunnery sergeant because like you, you deserve it and you're repping the Marine Corps so hard in terms of posthumous ones. I'm not sure. Uh, I'd love if someone could write in and tell us, but um, it's the first time that I've heard of it, but I'm sure it's not the first time that it's happened.
0: I've seen it happen in movies Like it's, it's mentioned in like a a couple of like old movies that I've seen from the thirties, uh, when that happens, but I've, I've never heard of it happening in real life. I'm sure obviously it does, but I just wasn't sure how common that was.
2: Right. I I don't know to answer your question, but I think it's something that's done in the military to sort of pay respect to someone. And I don't know, it's possible that he like, let's say, uh, maybe Keating was in line for promotion already and had the right score. And like the next time he was stateside or the next month he would have gotten promoted anyways. And so they were like, well, let's just pay our respects." Like his, his gravestone should read captain or whatever. So you see that also different eras and different situations, promotions worked differently. So we don't really, I don't think the military does any more battlefield promotions, which you see in old World war, war two movies where essentially the Lieutenant gets killed and then like the highest ranking sergeant gets killed and they take like some corporal and they're like okay you're a lieutenant congratulations like you're in charge of this unit usually the way it works uh, as far as i know is that the n- the next person in charge whoever's highest ranking is going to be temporarily in charge and they might lead that unit as if they were a lieutenant also that might lead them to a faster promotion later but usually battlefield promotions are no longer a thing that I know of. Again, if uh, one of you guys or gals that's listening in the military uh, can correct us if we're wrong, please do.
0: Well, and I feel like it might be a little different in the Navy because I think like, it, or, and this might vary from Navy to Navy. It might be different in the British Navy versus the U.S. Navy versus anywhere else. Uh, but I feel like if you are in charge of a ship, you are your title and rank is captain. Uh, whereas like you might but they there might be like a little bit of play in like the levels of captain or what kind of captain you are
2: that's not what it is so that's a very specific example and again i don't think there's going to be any episode where like i lay out the rank structure of every because that would just be boring to people who are listening so but this is actually something you brought up that it might be
0: catnip for our listeners you don't know
2: <laughs> so <laughs> this is our
0: this is our second episode there's no telling who's listening to this thing
2: that's true i'll speak for something that i do know about because it's a good example first of all navy ranks are a little bit confusing because they're the most different from the other services. The Marine Corps and the Army are slightly different. The Navy's really different, especially with officers. And so um, you're right, though. Captain, as in the captain of a ship, is both a title when you're the commander of a ship. It's also a rank. Um, And the confusing part is that in most of the services, a captain is an O3. So they're the third level of officer. Um, In the Navy, a captain is an O6. So the ranks in the Navy follow a different structure. And so it's the same word and the same name, but it's a different rank. And um, one movie that I'm, if it's not on the list, I'm totally going to add it, uh, which is Greyhound shows a good example of that where Tom Hanks is a, I can't remember if he's a commander or lieutenant commander by rank, but he's the captain of that ship. So they're going to call him captain or skipper. As, as a colloquial um so yeah and and that can happen uh or like top for example the the term top uh, in like army and Marine Corps for sure is usually referring to a master sergeant. It means you're like the top enlisted guy. Right. But I, I think that I certainly see it in films. And again, I'm not a hundred percent sure if this happens is sometimes a lower rank will still get called top simply because they are the highest enlisted dude around. So again, some of these things are official. Some of them are colloquialism. It depends on the branch. It depends on the time and you know we'll we'll get into them as they come along in the films but um yeah so i haven't
0: seen greyhound yet but uh just from that brief little blurb i'm really excited to hear tom hanks say the line this time instead that he's the captain now
1: look at me sure i'm the captain now
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's funny um yeah that's a that's a i, I really liked it. anyways back to the topic at hand <laughs> Um. Yeah, I had to look into – I think one of the things I noticed first um, was the setting and where they filmed because I was like, man, I know they didn't go to Afghanistan to film this. It would probably be – I don't think there's a safe enough region in Afghanistan where they could do this and get these kinds of mountains. But what really they really fucking got, looked
0: like Afghanistan. It didn't looked
2: it? a lot like Afghanistan and it just looked epic. And I think the scene um, – Where I forget which character is like looking up and the camera pans up and you're just going up and up and up and it's like never ending. I'm like, wow, is there going to be a sky up there or is it all like rock? Um, It's like the Night's
0: Watch is up on top of it and they're just like looking out for the White Walkers. It's like three three horn blasts.
2: Yeah. So one of the soldiers in the interviews at the end describes that feeling and describes it exactly the same as the camera panning where he was like, yeah, we just looked up and – The mountain never ended. So this was filmed in Bulgaria, um, and I don't know if there's a valley with a mountain like that steep in Bulgaria. So it's quite possible that it's a mix of CGI and an actual panning shot. But yeah, it was crazy to look at. And and we'll talk about the, the tactical faux pas of like putting an outpost in this spot. A lot. Exactly. I'm
1: sure. That's but, what uh, I was thinking the whole time. But, I was like, "Why would you put something here?"
2: Oh yeah, and the troops complained about it, and they described it like being at the bottom of a funnel and essentially being just like an impossible place to defend. You know?
0: Yeah, it's like why would you build a base in the basement of like a three-story shit house? Like it's just, Wait, why- everybody
1: knows that the lower ground. Like it, you. Oh, I have the higher ground. I mean, it's it's so basic. It's in Star Wars. If
0: you learned nothing from Mannequin Skywalker and obi-wan's fight it's that the high ground is the end all it's be the all winner. but it's funny like my 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 son is 10 years old and he's getting into like war movies and stuff so he's he's very excited his his favorite movie is 1917 um which i i let his good taste i i let him watch and like my dad and i took him to see it in the theater you know as like a, a treat like he's you know his first R rated movie. And oh, that's awesome. Man. He was King of third grade for like three state straight weeks. Uh, Cause he got to go see an R rated movie with his old man. Uh, but you know, he was asking me about, about the outpost and he, uh, and, and he was like, what's it about? And I was like, well, it's about this. And they, you know, had this base that was kind of indefensible that, you know, it got attacked by a bunch of uh, Taliban, And they're like in the bottom of like this ring of mountains and everybody could just like shoot down at them. And he was like, Jesus, why would they do that? (laughs) And I was like, I, they were wondering the same thing, pal. Like every, nobody knew why that base was important to be there. Like literally everybody was just like, this sucks.
2: Well, so I, I think from what I could gather of the, history just reading a little bit on wikipedia i haven't read this book and so I, I don't know a lot about the um greater politics behind it but in general the u.s strategy especially in this region of afghanistan was you know sort of hearts and minds the the taliban were it's a little bit like the Viet Cong issue in the vietnam war right like the taliban are often violent and authoritarian and they're trying to you know create um like a like a caliphate in their own place and so you know the civilians in the area are oftentimes victims but for anybody who's there fighting counterinsurgency it's hard to discern who's who and who can i trust and this particular area in the hindu kush called nuristan um is actually so it's described as being ethnically really different from the rest of Afghanistan. There are five different um, like ethnic groups in this area, and they have smaller subdivisions within those ethnic groups. And so they speak five languages with several dialects and they fight amongst each other about water rights, about their particular sect of Islam and, and you know, whether they disagree about, you know, sort of like you you hear about um, Shia and Sunnis, like in Iraq. There's always that distinction, and it's about if you've looked it up before. Uh, it's, it's funny. I always feel like when I read it, I'm like, oh, it's interesting that these people are fighting over like a small difference in how they feel that the descendants of Muhammad, you know, who the prophets are, et cetera. But then it's like you think about all the Christians that have fought each other and, and Protestants and Catholics and the troubles in Ireland. And you're like, oh, right, like we do it all over. It's the place. almost like,
0: like it has nothing to do with religion.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh can, my God! I can think of the the tiny differences between Lutheranism and Catholicism, and it it really does kind of bring a different perspective on like it's it's really not that different than us, so right? Our Western culture versus their Middle Eastern culture. No, I
0: actually took a in in college. I I took a a course on uh, the history of the Ottoman Empire. That's cool. Yeah, it was a really interesting class. But like to understand the history of the Ottomans you really had to first understand the history of Islam. And like, if you think of it like as, as uh, and and it's been so long now that I don't remember all the nuances of it. But if you think of it, just speaking very broadly, and uh, Islam follows the path of the prophet. One sect, I can't remember if it's the, the Shia or the Sunni, but one sect puts the emphasis when they say it on the path and the other one puts the emphasis on the prophet one is much more concerned with whose lineage is is it, it can be traced back to muhammad and the other one is like, are you doing the shit you're supposed to do?
2: Right. And and I think, like you said, a lot of it comes down to not directly religion, but a lot of it just comes down to are other people that are not your group trying to tell you how to live your life or what to do. And th- those divisions happen, you know, in our country between religious and non-religious people. But I think obviously it happens within the same religion and different sects and how they interpret things. So it's no well, surprise. also...
0: Like, if you look at the, you see a lot of similarities in, like you mentioned, the Catholics and the Protestants. When you talk about, like, in Northern Ireland, it wasn't so much a religious debate in any sense of the word as it was uh, religion was the dividing issue that uh, was used to to separate the haves and the have-nots. So you have, uh, like, literal uh laws that were in place in ireland uh not just not just in the north but when the british had all of ireland uh that like specifically like catholics couldn't own land catholics couldn't own anything worth more than five pounds they couldn't serve in the civil service stuff like that but it was all delineated onto were you a catholic or were you a protestant and when you like raise up one group and push down another they're not going to necessarily uh look at the like who's got their thumb on what scale but they're too busy fighting each other to notice so that's i feel like that's a lot of and surprise this a lot of these lines were divvied up by uh the british when like iraq and all of those lines are just people being pushed together that
1: And then the Russians did their bit.
0: Yeah, and then we had our hand in it and just... Oh,
2: yeah. All that to say that these differences, whether they're directly religious or indirectly, are all over the world in every conflict. So, again, from one perspective, you can say, like, oh, well, why don't you just get along? And then you think about it and put it in your terms and you're like, oh, right, like, we do this too. So, needless to say, it was like a fraught region with different sects and and different uh, tribes sort of fighting each other also civilians trying to live their lives in a pretty unhospitable place like there's no running water electricity you know they're they're trying to work things out um, interpreters for the US army were almost useless because you had to get an interpreter from that specific um sect or 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 tribe and so it's kind of like who do you trust and who do you know so translation was also difficult
0: i thought that that was actually pretty nicely done like they didn't put a whole lot of emphasis in the movie but uh the translator who's probably again like a compression like an amalgamation of like different people all into one guy um just for continuity's sake uh but when The the second captain whose name is unpronounceable to me.
2: I've never seen a name like that. Uh, I pronounce it as Yeskus, but I'm not sure.
1: I believe it's Greek.
0: Um, I couldn't. Well, I when they put it up there because they put if they. It's kind of cool how for structure uh, this movie divvies up the the film in acts based on who the commanding officer is at the time Mm -hmm. and they put their name up and i think that's pretty cool for a structural standpoint Um, when they put his name up i looked at it and i was like i can pronounce that and then somebody referred to him by name and i was like i would not have guessed that in a million years that looks nothing like the name that i worked out in my head Um, (laughs) so i'm not even going to take a crack at it but it's mel gibson's son right when, milo. when 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 young milo takes the command and goes forth and again i'm not saying this to uh i'm not calling him young mel gibson to to disparage the actual character that he's playing i just don't want to fuck up that guy's name when he is berating the the translator he's like what do you mean you don't speak this dialect and the translator's like i don't know something about they're talking about scarves i think i don't speak this language exactly and he's like what do you mean you don't speak the language um but really like they were watching him because he was wearing the scarf and so when he crossed over the bridge they knew which guy was the command which was the top guy to blow the bomb up yeah i didn't
2: catch that until i read that i thought that was cool i was like oh that was a great bit of very quick foreshadowing that they did um using that very real issue that these interpreters were having in the area yeah Mm -hmm. i thought that was really well done the way they did that
1: i think structurally you know this film is really well done in regards to how well it makes it feel real. Like it does feel very realistic being there. And that is almost certainly due to the fact that the vast majority of the, um, the guides and, uh, the realism folks were actual people who were there. They did their best to hire folks who had been there and give their opinions and make it feel all that realistic. And I loved that even though, you know, we don't necessarily know all of that, like all this info that we've given you about you know, there's five different uh, cultural groups all living together. Even if you don't know that going in from how the camera shoots when those few times when we see them meeting with the elders of the communities, how it shoots them kind of they're all sitting in different sections and they're all separated by just a little bit of space a little bit of space that kind of delineates like, okay, these are all one group of people. Mm-hmm. These are multiple cultures coming together, trying to deal with this occupying force. Because I'm sure for them, they feel as though it's an occupier because it's living in their land and all of that. And I think the director did such a great job of trying to tell us that stuff without having to outright, you know, info dumps like this is this sect this is this sect so that's so well executed they don't do a
2: lot of exposition yeah I mean. no
1: there's almost none which i think is the right choice for a movie like this because if you add any exposition whatsoever you're really going to lose the pace and this movie is very well paced with how intense it is
0: and i think that's that's one problem that i i do have with the movie uh the pace and the tension is really goddamn strong throughout um however i i don't know that it does a good enough job making it clear how many different groups they're dealing with
1: no i agree i i
0: i don't i think if they had made that a little bit more apparent somehow be it visually be it with added lines of dialogue because uh, a lot of, I mean, especially in the in the scenes where they're meeting with the elders, especially with Keating, uh, there is a certain amount of, you know, he briefs these guys before they go in. There could have been some, you know, we're dealing with like this group here and this group here. These guys really don't fucking like these guys. You know what I mean? Like, there, he gives them exposition that you could have worked something like that in. And the reason... To me, that I feel like that's a detail that's important, is that it goes uh, further to...
1: To illustrate the depth of the conflict? And
0: not paint them all with the same brush. I think the way that it worked out, it makes uh, the Afghan people and the Taliban a little bit of like one monolith of the enemy or the other, that... I don't know that the people serving there necessarily had the idea of, or if they did, maybe not everybody did. And it probably wasn't the reality. It's like they show up to that first meeting and everybody loves Keating. They show up to the second meeting and all the young guys are gone who are fighting age. And they're like, well, they're all up in the hills fighting with the Taliban now. Like it really is just like these guys would all be the enemy except they're they're old and their backs are bent and they they're just not in the young man's game anymore like does that make sense
2: i mean kind of i get what you guys are saying but i think there's also this is like a, a writer and a filmmaker trying to parse out really complex things that i don't think necessarily every soldier or every commander in that region even fully understood right they're there for what a deployment of 12 months to 18 months maybe and it's like so they have this job to do and their job is it's it's the acronym is called coin but it stands for counterinsurgency tactics and essentially it was like okay beyond tactical fighting and how to win a firefight like how do we win hearts and minds? How do we start to turn Afghanistan into a place where the government is respected, the people feel like the government is doing something for them and giving them something for their taxes, it's protecting them, etc. If you, if you can't get that, well, then of course – Strong men like the Taliban are going to be able to run the show because they're going to say, "Look, first of all, if we catch you helping the Americans, we'll kill you." And they did that many times. There were, you know, people killed as warning signs, left hanging somewhere with a sign on them saying, "This is what happens when you help Americans." And so you're scaring the population to the point where they're like, just trying to survive. And so it's like, do I talk to the Americans? Do I lie to the Americans? Do I go to their base and use a cell phone and try and take pictures because, you know, that'll keep my family safe? So it's. I think that's really complex and I don't think necessarily, depending on how good the intel was, but again, you're talking about all these different valleys and all these villages, like there's no way our intel would be able to know all those details. So the the commander on the ground, these captains who have, you know, maybe 10 years experience in the military... And maybe they were in Iraq a couple of years before, so they're not even necessarily that experienced in Afghanistan, depending. I'm not calling anyone out in particular. I'm saying this is a really complex and difficult situation, even for the people in it, let alone people trying to describe it later. So I think in the end, what you guys are picking up as something that maybe they could have highlighted better. I'm like, I don't know. It also tends to kind of Make the audience feel in the same confused place that like a lot of these commanders were probably feeling too, they knew certain things about the culture, right, and I like how they highlighted that where when the these different captains, like uh Yeskus and Keating are negotiating they use terms that those tribes would understand, like, well, you know, I'm going to lose honor with my elders if I can't come back and tell them that I know that this money I'm giving you is going to go in the right place and it's going to be to build a road or build a school or build a build a hydroelectric dam or whatever it is, um, as opposed to that you're going to turn around and give it to the talent. So he's like, they they were obviously trained to talk in a certain way, where they were meeting at least somewhat on a cultural level, you know, that they would understand. Um, but there's I think there's still a lot of miscommunication and a lot of confusion, a lot of body language. When you see the young fighter get up and pick up his AK and you see everyone getting nervous because they're like, I don't know what this guy's gonna do. And then he puts it down and says manana, and then they all get up and do it, which I had to look it up, but manana means thank you in, in Pashtu um, again, like he didn't know what was about to happen just that second. Right. And so I don't know, some of it, I think is a good way of pulling the audience into that same place of confusion, you know, whether it's accidental, or whether it was written that way. I think it it does that.
1: I think the other thing to remember with this one is, you know, Jake Tapper wrote this. And um, from what I've read about his writing of this, this was like a huge deal to him. This was a big, important thing. Like he said, if I die, this is the thing I want people to remember about me, not my news career. If I can help, you know, the folks who are in Afghanistan who went through this become names that people know that I've done my job. So I think this, the book at least, which I haven't read, but is on my, on my to read list eternally long. Um, and the director, really trying to portray this from the experience of the troops perspective. It like gets not, we're not meant to see this from like the third person. This is very much a first person film that is talking about the experiences of these particular soldiers in this particular place. And like Dan said, I think it does a good job of explaining that confusion. And the, like, I'm just, you know, regular dude from Iowa. Like, I don't, I'm not a history major. I don't know anything. I don't, I don't speak any of these languages. I'm just trying to get by because I'm here for a year doing my, doing my bit. And I think the film, if you look at it from that perspective, I think the film does a good job in kind of dropping us in to the same place that they're in. And you can like that or not like that because it, it, in some ways, it does lead to a very uh specific perspective where it can lead to us thinking like, "Oh well, these people are all the same, they're all bad, they're all against the Americans, and it doesn't give us a whole lot of variety about them but I don't think the movie is trying to talk about them. it's trying to talk about the perspective of the soldiers from the perspective of the soldiers, and I think it does that well, but it's definitely a choice and whether or not you like that choice is going to be personal.
2: And I think it's important also as a filmmaker or as a storyteller, like you got to decide what you are and you got to decide what kind of story you're telling. If you try and jump around too much, it becomes more difficult and you might lose that perspective altogether. Right. The fact that we're, there is no protagonist, right? I mean, we stick with Scott Eastwood's character, um, uh, Ramesha, like a lot, but he's not the main character, or at least he's not he's not the protagonist. Like you really see the perspective of whatever soldier is in the shit in that moment, um, and so I think it's actually an average of what the officers thought, what the enlisted men thought, these meetings, etc. Um, so I agree with you that it's told it's an on the ground perspective from sort of the average, not necessarily the private who doesn't know anything, but kind of the average knowledge of the soldiers on that base. Certainly not what McChrystal's opinion is, which, you know, those things come into the conversation here and there. But
1: But it's all from their perspective. It's all from the troops perspective of mm-hmm. what McChrystal is thinking and wanting out of it, which mm-hmm. I thought was a good tactic.
0: It is. No. And it's it's one hundred percent you guys are are spot on as far as the perspective of the film being from the the limited knowledge that they have on the ground and the film really wants us to be like down in the shit with them uh which it does a good job by and large but that also leads me into a question of like why do we think this film was made um and i know that it is like jake tapper interviewed these guys and it became a, a a very important personal thing to him to to tell their story um and i think he was an executive producer on this
1: yes he was and he was there for most of the shooting
0: yeah i'm i'm sure that's that's the case but so this is it's not a pro war movie it's not an anti-war movie. It tries its best to avoid uh
1: politics, s-
0: sentiment and jingoism and politics and things like that. Um I don't know I I don't know if it was successful because I'm also not sure what the what the intent was as far as telling the story. Not to say that these guys' stories don't deserve to be told, because they they do, but I still want to know why I'm being told it. Because this is a remarkable thing that uh, you had two Medal of Honor winners, living Medal of Honor winners, from the same battle come out of this. That is, that is a unique circumstance. But why is it important to tell people about them? Is it to just, is it just solely to recognize these guys or is it, uh, to, to put the sacrifice that people who are in the military, you are laying out on the field, like every day, is it, because if it is the intention of like putting all of the military in the forefront of the public consciousness, um and the sacrifices that they make then why not be a little more heavy-handed with the filmmaking you know what i mean like it seemed like it almost wanted to be a documentary style but it's telling a story that it's really difficult to tell this in a non-biased unimpassioned way but I feel like they almost like apart from Caleb Landry Jones, uh, who I honestly think should have been nominated for something for his performance in this, uh, there, there isn't a lot of it's, it's, it's very like, fuck it. We'll deal with that feeling tomorrow. Kind of, kind of thing. You know what I mean?
1: I think some of that stuff is due to the acting in this. I think that, one of the downfalls that I saw in this is um, there's not a lot of differentiation between the characters and we don't get to spend enough time with a lot of them to really feel like they're unique a lot of the time. And this is the nature of a film that is for a lot of the runtime is firefights and battles and close contact with enemy and all that. you don't get the sense of a lot of individualism among these guys. They're all just kind of in hyper soldier mode, which I, again, this is a battle movie. That's what it's going to be, but it does lend itself to making it harder to tell the difference. And it kind of, for me, feels like by the end, it was like, okay, this is all one soldier perspective and not, you know, this is this dude's perspective. And this is this guy's perspective. There was a lot of homogeny, between the performances and how the script went and all of that, it feels like they're all just kind of the same dude with different faces if you will Ex- except caleb landry he's good
0: except for caleb landry jones uh he was he was very good, and Scott Eastwood is a snack, and I think everybody can agree on that like that's uh, but big, oh my movie. God,
1: aping his dad there were multiple scenes I was like. <laughs> <laughs> hey, honey, you're doing a you're doing a Clint impression right now, and I
0: we're taking this bitch back. Like, is that sounded like his dad?
2: Yeah, there's definitely a lot of squinting.
1: Yes, so much squinting.
0: And that's not just because of the sunlight, but I, that's what I'm trying. Thank you, Katie, because that's really what I'm trying to get at. Like, it's it's not it's not telling the stories of these guys as individuals. You know what I mean? It's telling a story about the medals they got more than the people who got the medals. You know what I mean?
2: I don't know. I guess I got to give the writers and the filmmaking the benefit of the doubt that that's what they were going for. At least that's how I feel. Because while I totally get what you're saying narratively, that just in a story, you know, you want to develop certain characters so that you can certainly tell the difference between people. And of course, there's this sort of Steven Spielberg way of doing it with, you know, guy from Brooklyn guy that's Jewish, et cetera, et cetera. And this was a pretty, I thought that the divert, like the ethnic diversity of the soldiers was pretty representative of the U S military. You have a lot of like, you know, lower middle-class people are usually who's in the military for the most part. And it's like, yeah, I don't, I don't know what the actual numbers were of the army at that time, but I feel like what I saw on screen was like, 60-65% white guys, a couple of black guys, a few Latinos, you know, kind of filling in the rest. Um, and you see, you see their interactions being just sort of typical grunt interactions. They're like messing with each other, talking shit to each other, you know, getting away or not getting away with like throwing racial slurs at each other. I thought that scene was pretty funny. Where, where the black character, I can't remember his name, but he was like, better check yourself. <laughs> like uh, I'll pull you out of a firefight, but I'll also knock you out. If you say that again, you know, which I thought was a cool scene to throw in there. But I think some of this feeling of sort of everyone seeming the same in terms of the look and everything, again, to me, at least represents the perspective of the Afghan civilians that come in there all those soldiers are going to look the same to them right there's a there's a point that i know comes from something that one of the commanders i can't remember if it was Keating or one of the following ones um, that he realized that they're like gear clatter and sort of like helmet and flak and like, you know, multiple weapons and all that was like intimidating a lot to the civilians just when they were meeting, because it was basically like, you guys look like you're constantly ready for a fight. And of course, as a soldier in like a forgotten outpost, you're like, well, yeah, we are. Cause we're getting shot at every day. But at some point, one of these captains uh, got into shorts and a t-shirt and went to the next meeting with like nothing because he wanted to not look like this alien invader like robot person, you know.
0: Yeah. No, I think it was Keating. It was Keating who who mentioned that on like while he was taking off his his armored vest. Well, that's
2: the scene. I'm saying that happened in real life, but I can't remember if it was Keating in real life, but they show it in the mm-hmm. scene where Keating okay, takes his you. stuff off, right? That that was representative of something that really happened.
1: Right. It's like you don't bring your knife to the to the you know, the peace meeting or yeah, something. Yeah, you
2: keep your weapons outside.
1: As a show of goodwill that you're not there to Cause problems. Right.
2: But again, as a matter of perspective, this idea that they're sort of like all similar shows you probably a little bit of the Afghan perspective of how they must look at them. But for us, also the fact that they're calling each other by name and they're friends and they have relationships and they know each other. But in the end, you know that it doesn't matter who is who. If someone falls down outside and is hit, you know that the soldiers around him are gonna do everything they possibly can to rescue him. They don't care who that guy is. So I, I think there's a little bit of that going on as well.
0: It's tough to do both things at the same time. We're like yes, to the Af- yes. to the Afghan perspective, all these guys look alike. To each other, it doesn't really matter who they are because the unif- them wearing the same uniform puts them on the same team and they have to have each other's backs. It really doesn't matter if they like him. But I would have really liked to have from a a moment to moment basis been able to tell the difference between uh, the guy who got kicked in the chest versus the guy who did the kicking. I would like to know who was jerking off to whose wife and who had to do the pushups. And there's a lot of
2: characters, to be fair. You know, there's a lot of guys. There are a lot of characters,
0: but, you know, it's it's something that. And I and I like that it didn't have it I like that it didn't have the tokenism of like this is the Jewish guy, this is the Brooklyn guy, uh, this is the one black guy. Like it was it was it, it struck me as being very realistic. And a lot of this, I think the idea of this movie was to be realistic, but if it could have had just maybe like five to ten percent more artistry to it. It would have worked better as a movie for people who don't uh who aren't already familiar with the military, so that's kind of is this when I say why was this movie made? Was this movie made for military people to appreciate these people? Was it made for the layperson or the civilian to appreciate what happened because if it's supposed to be a movie for Everybody to watch and be able to get uh a better appreciation from I think th- five to ten percent more artistry in the storytelling since you're already condensing shit down, you know you're already playing with the timelines a little bit you're taking a couple of creative licenses here and there um but because everybody involved was military from the director on down uh it. I, I wonder if it was like you're a little too close to the elephant.
1: I could see that. To see the whole
0: elephant. You know what I mean? I think
1: mean? there's also this sense of this, that this movie, for me, when I've been thinking about it as we're discussing it, like we talked about how there really isn't a protagonist necessarily. But I think that the film more aims to have that um, – Dan, remind me, is, is troop the correct term for this group of folks –
2: They're soldiers. I mean, what do you mean? Like the group itself? Like
1: they're they're
0: units. Is it a platoon? Is it a unit? Is it a – how is that?
2: So these guys are going to all be part of the same unit, I think, because this base is pretty small. So you don't have like a mechanics section. Well, yeah. But uh, what I mean is that – but you're still going to have shifts right so the way they're set up on guard posts those are going to be run on certain hours where it's like okay so you're going to divide up into squads or teams and 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 any military unit of any size is always subdivided so that you can organize it right and and that people can be in charge of their own section so like a platoon for example which is the size of like what you see in boot camp movies so you know But don't quote me on the numbers, but, you know, 60 to 100 guys, for example, guys and gals. And the platoon would be divided into squads, each with a squad leader, each squad into a fire team, each with its own fire team leader. Right. It just
1: gets smaller and smaller as you go down.
2: So a base like this would be divided in the same way. You have an officer who's ultimately responsible for everything. In this case, it seemed to always be a captain by rank. So he's ultimately responsible, again, to his higher ups. And then he's going to have um a lieutenant, you know, someone right below him that his is his assistant. And then you're gonna have some higher enlisted guys, and then that all trickles down and gets divided. So each sergeant or corporal who's a non-commissioned officer, which is like the first group of sort of leaders in the military, is going to have X number of soldiers who are privates or specialists under him. And they're in turn responsible for them. Right. So that's just how it works to keep things organized. And then, yeah, like you said, he comes in and calls in another um, shift or group. I can't remember what he calls them, but that's also because there's people sleeping. There's people on standby. There's people on patrol. There's people whose job it is to go around and make sure everyone has ammo and water. So all that stuff is going to be organized on a schedule and you're going to have shifts so that you can have downtime and sleep time etc cetera, etc cetera. it's obviously not random. i would
1: say that this film at least from my perspective really tries to have the protagonist as it were be the unit like the group of men that we are seeing and
2: and more specifically i would say the enlisted men are the protagonists yes you, you see the officers but you know it's it's the of hilarious of yeah and i mean i'm not i mean i mean there's there's the one captain the guy who Uh, Broward, who they keep carrying the piss bottles uh, to the burn pit for, which is funny. And someone else noted this in a review. That's like the first time they've seen piss bottles like on screen in a film. But like everyone who's deployed knows that. I mean... We did that too in Iraq, but that's because it was winter and even the walk to the bathroom of 50 yards or whatever was freezing cold. So we often just peed in bottles at night and then dumped them out in the morning. I certainly never handed to anyone to take to a burn pit for me. That's That was kind of the point of that interaction. Why would you
0: need but, to burn piss?
2: Well, you don't need to, but... <laughs>
0: like I was like why does he keep telling him to light his piss on fire? Like I know they, they set up the, the burning shit and I'm like, this, this makes sense. That's how you get rid of that. But like a bottle full of piss is just like going to put the fire out. Isn't it? It's the point that he didn't want to go outside and get shot.
2: That's the point. That's right. They're trying, they're trying to frame him or at least they're trying to. The enlisted men's
0: perspective of him as being a piece of shit.
2: As Broward the coward, right? That he doesn't walk outside. He's got 30 bottles in here. That's how long he's been in this room in the command post. And he's too afraid to go outside when we're outside all the time exposed to this bullshit. Has Broward and
0: or Broward's family had anything to say about this movie or the book? Like, That's have, a
2: great question. Have
0: there been any like defamation? Like, this is horseshit. I was not that guy. Or like they're going to bat for for Broward. Because like on the one hand, that dude sucks. On the other hand, does he just suck in this movie? Like, because you never get the payoff.
1: Of him getting his end? Well, you never get the payoff
0: of either him proving himself to the men and them getting that begrudging respect. Or getting fragged. Like, you know, you never get like, that's just like, oh, and uh, I'm leaving now.
2: Peace. In fact, one thing I didn't understand plot wise, and I I didn't research this particular thing is I didn't exactly understand what event caused him to get relieved of his command. Because certainly the fact that your soldiers don't like you is not a reason to get relieved of command. I think that was kind of lost in the the jumble of
1: trying to shorten the timeline to make this all one tellable narrative. So I think they just kind of, what I call hand-waving. Like and it happened. Don't worry about it.
0: The only thing that I can think of is that, uh, when like what it struck me as, or at least how Broward set it up in that little bit of dialogue, that's like I'm leaving. Uh, got my orders. I'm going home. Uh, was the uh, when he said who was coming in? It sounded like that guy's specialty is shutting down shitty outposts like just that like brief line of dialogue he's like yeah they're bringing in what's his name so i mean you know when he's here he's that this place is getting shut down you guys will all be home by like wednesday or whatever like is how he sort of described it if I'm remembering it correctly, he Interesting. Was,
2: I I just thought that he, that guy had a pretty badass reputation for being a good leader and a good soldier. I thought that's what I caught on. Yeah, the so cuz
0: well when he was leaving he was like you guys will be home Yeah, you guys will probably be getting your orders next coming up anytime now. Like it it seemed like that was a that was just the impression I got. I don't know if anybody has a reputation as being like a closer. Of like overseeing that kind of that kind of transition, but
1: I wouldn't think that's something. I would think if there is that reputation, that's not something that like regular enlisted guys would know. That would be something that like, oh well, we always send so and so to take care of these specific issues, as because I know right. But stuff it's that from Broward work.
0: is where that information came from, right? So like, but that was the only thing that I got. But he certainly was not uh, wasting any time in taking those orders and running with them. And leaving the lieutenant to hold the bag.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure. We may be connecting two things that are, that are separate. I, I just don't know enough about the person or the character. But again, I, I feel like while his family might not be stoked on his portrayal in this film, again, giving the filmmakers the benefit of the doubt, I think that his portrayal is, it's not really his character. It's the perspective of his character from the enlisted men's uh, yeah. perspective. And so that's like not – if that really is true that he was not that well-liked amongst the troops, you don't necessarily have to prove anything bad about that guy if that's how those troops felt. And they certainly seem to interview plenty of them. And And
1: this movie was very much meant for military folks. Like when they did the premiere, the original premiere was meant to be at South by Southwest. But before that, they were screening this for – what was it? 4,000 folks at West Point. Those were meant to be the first people, and the director talked about when he, or no, this was Jake Tapper, um, they had a screening for all the family members and the folks who were still alive. And Jake Tapper went around asking every single family member, you know, what'd you think? Is it uh, respectful? And he, from what he said, everybody was very, like, appreciative of his, of how it all came out in the end. So, Yeah. And they
2: balance it out. If you remember the scene where, um, Carter goes to sit down at the mess hall and he talks to the Lieutenant and he's like, Hey, open door policy. Can I talk to you? And he gives him the nickname. He said, bro, the coward, et cetera. You know, the Lieutenant kind of clears the record and he's like, Hey, this guy was in Iraq, like fighting before, you know, you were even in the military or whatever he says to him. So shut shut the hell up. And like, I don't want to hear that again, you know? So again, I feel like his reputation has at least the benefit of the doubt in the film. So, uh, um, I, I did want to make a point about one of Liam's earlier questions where he was sort of interrogating, like, what is this film about? Who is it made for? Et cetera. I think if you watch the interviews at the end, um, I believe it's Carter who with like tears in his eyes is giving a very heartfelt interview. And he says, you know, When I wear that medal, meaning the Medal of Honor, I think about all those guys because five guys died just to get to me and like to rescue me or, you know, to get me out of that situation. And I think in the end, that sums up pretty much what this film is about and who it's for more than anything else. I think that we see the reason why the politics aren't delved into and we see the reason why you don't really see the bigger picture. Now, I would never argue that this film is a good way to get a handle over like what happened in that period of our war in Afghanistan. Obviously, you'd have to watch other things and read other books. Um, but I just think that they stayed in their lane, uh, in a good way and were trying to just tell the story of these soldiers who were an impossible
1: in, in, situation, a, rock and
2: a hard place, literally. Right. Um, yeah. And, and I think even the selection of the post, you know, if you go back and read the history of how they, that area it was due to like just really a lack of anything better you know there was like too many rocks in one section because they ended up putting a base where three sides of it had mountains there were three perfectly
0: good mountains they could have built on top of i'm just saying (laughs) you
2: know it's that that's true but that might not give you the proximity that you need it the other problem is getting around here i mean keating and and i think someone else died in that truck just from because some, Moron wanted to get that truck to that base. Like this shouldn't even be here. These roads can't even handle it. So that's the other problem is transportation, right? Unless you're in a helicopter, just getting around here and getting vehicles around is super difficult. So the bottom of the valley. And I'm not excusing the location, and I don't enough. I don't know enough about military strategy to judge those commanders. Although you can see the result, a lot of people got disciplined and relieved of command, and they shut down those bases for obvious reasons. So it was definitely a bad call from the beginning. Um, but it was just a situation I think where they were in that area and they like, wasn't really that much better of a choice if you took all those factors into account. Now it's easy for some general making that decision behind a desk somewhere. He's not the one who has to patrol that area every day. And he's not the one who has to get shot at every day. So there again, we're highlighting the soldier's perspective of like, man, this is bullshit. Why are we here? Like who, who is the idiot that put this base here? Like that's a very typical conversation for enlisted, men.
0: If if you had the scene from like the World War One movie where you have like the the generals in the smoky room playing Risk, where they're like shuffling things around with like the baccarat kind of thing, uh, if even if you had that scene, nobody looking at like a topographical map of this place would have been like here. This will do us the most good. Like, nobody, like, zoom out from however far you want. I don't know who, except, like, just from a, a sheer, like, we need something within X number of miles from this something that we have over here, is literally the only kind of uh, uh, decision making that seemed to be at play as far as, like, a need that was being. I felt fulfilled. like
1: they're, from the troops' perspective, it's who considers us to be acceptable losses because it, that's kind of what it feels like that you put a base at the bottom of multiple mountains so that you can literally just throw rocks as though they're projectiles. If you're high up enough and you got a good arm and take out these soldiers, you know, I, for them, it's like, Oh, well, we've just been judged expendable. We're not, whoever's here is expendable because somebody needs to be here. And that's very much how it feels because, like, when you're watching those beginning firefights and you're seeing the Taliban begin to descend upon them, it's like, well, who didn't see this coming? And it's like, well, somebody probably saw it coming, but just judged that, like, well, these are acceptable losses. And.
2: Right. They even foreshadow it, right? Where, where the, uh, the main character or Eastwood's character. Somebody asked him, how would you do it if you were attacking this base?
0: And he describes it in perfect detail.
2: (laughs) He describes what they ended up doing, which, well, which makes sense. All those small attacks were tactical. They were trying to see how the base reacted, right? Like where is the mortar pit? When, how long does it take them to get to, is someone stationed at the mortar pit? How long before mortar rounds start flying towards us? Right. Um, And it's funny, Liam brought up topography. I forget who I was reading, but someone made a comment that was saying essentially that maps of the area were basically useless because the topography was like so insane that really you had to have a three-dimensional view to understand. Um, Again, for example, from this perspective, is this base going to have cover from this other area? Like how much of the mountain is in the way from like mortar indirect fire that you could call in? um was really difficult to figure out on maps So yeah, really like just the most concentrated and intense place to be that I can really think of. I mean, you want to talk about uh heart title Danger Glows, like there's there's a lot of conversation about. So it took them like 45 48 minutes for the Taliban to break through into the base. And the soldiers once the mortar pit was knocked out and some of their heavier weapons were knocked out, they retreated to sort of some inner buildings. And there were times where, um, aircraft like close air support was actually getting called in within the perimeter of the base. That would be a danger close fire mission, for example, because if it's off at all, um, it's, it's going to hit some of the troops, you know? So yeah, really tough situation. Um, let's, I wanted to get into a little bit of the, Filming the crew, the cinematographer. First of all, it's insane. If you go on IMDb and scroll to the full crew list, I was scrolling on a full page for like 30 seconds straight. Like the number of people working on this film, it's insane. There's
1: way more crew. There's way more crew than cast in this movie
2: by like 10 times as much it's like insane and and also their names are mostly all eastern european so i was like okay so they're obviously hiring bulgarian locals as you do when you're filming on location so let's move past the background and the context and and the politics and whatnot and let's talk about really the meat of this film which is this big firefight and the way they did that i mean i did not catch a single thing nothing ever pulled me out of it or made something feel unrealistic Um, from the way they're talking to each other to the way the battle is structured and choreographed and the way the cameras move, it was just like so intense and so gripping and kept me in so much. I wanted to ask you guys kind of like how you felt and what you thought about the cinematography and sort of that, that aspect of it.
1: Like they say, freedom ain't free. When you're looking at this movie, from a filmic perspective where we're talking about the script, the direction, the, the cinematography, the sound, all of that. Not from any perspective in regards to the actual battle and the real people who are involved in it. I think that the cinematography and all of that really does its best to illustrate the folks who are here. Like it really tries to see it from their perspective and put you right in these really uncomfortable places in places that as someone who does lots and lots of studying about blocking and the, all the boring part about film production, this is a very difficult movie to make because there's, it's all very close. There's not a lot of room where you can raise your camera up. You know, there's not a whole lot of options here because everything is takes place either in the grand, you know, outside the base, or it's in these buildings where it's all very Warren-like. And I think the cinematographers here did such a great job with replicating that Intensity.
2: Claustrophobic feeling. Yeah,
1: the claustrophobia, the intensity, the knowledge that you're you're almost in a maze, like the rat in a maze feeling, but it's a maze that those soldiers all know because obviously they've probably been there at least a little while. They know what their own base looks like. And so they have this very limited options and you can see them deciding like, Do I go here? Do I go? Oh, we're going this way. This is gonna be our best choice for now. And the cinematography does a great job of illustrating that, I thought, and However, they decided to, I, I don't know if this was shot on film or digital. I should have looked, but whichever way they went with it, it was the correct choice.
0: I guarantee you it it was digital.
1: Yeah, probably. There's
0: no way, shape or form that unless Wes Anderson made this movie, you can be pretty sure that it was. not I mean, lots
1: of film. people still shoot on film, and Rod Lurie is old, or Lurie, excuse me, is definitely old enough to where, when he started, he was shooting on film. So, I give him the benefit of the doubt, and that maybe he decided to go with it. But you're almost certainly correct. This was a digital movie.
2: Yeah, I mean, one thing you could say about it is that it, the, can, the photography and the filters and all that feel very clean. So it's got that digital feel. Um, they certainly didn't add any dirt to it from that perspective, but there's so much dirt and blood and sweat flying around in this film and literally hitting the camera that I almost feel like it gives you a clean slate, no pun intended, to um, really experience all those little details. Um, and they didn't fall into any tropey stuff, right? Like at no point did they do the explosion goes off and you make the whole audience's ears ring or like that's what's on the track is just ears ringing, which, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing because again, if you're trying to tell the story from a certain perspective, like sure, that's a realistic way to simulate what happens when a large explosion goes off right next to you. But, um, they didn't do that. They really let you be a fly on the wall in the middle of this battle, so to speak. Um, and it was, pretty terrifying you know every time someone's going into a building or out of a building they're like two feet had they been two feet faster or two seconds faster they would have been blown up by an by a mortar round that just hit you know um and that's just constantly happening and you really don't know because you don't have a protagonist and of course it's based on real events you don't really know who's gonna get hit and who's gonna make it you know when when they're in the humvee deciding. Um, when they're leaving Elraz 2 and trying to decide who, where they're going to go and who's going to do it. Like, you just have no idea who's going to walk outside and instantly be killed and who's going to survive.
0: Yeah, the so I'm going to I'm gonna kind of go the other way on this a little bit to the rousing surprise of nobody. Like, Dan immediately, as soon as I said that, Dan started nodding. Like, yep, here we go. Um, so the, uh, because everything you're saying is absolutely 100% correct. I just hate it. Uh, like the, uh, no, like the 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 camera work is excellent, and it's not like one of those things where like everything's digital. So like the camera work was done in post, after, like with a computer. It's it's not that they they did a blend of camera work and CGI that was effective, and in the um, in the 4K to 7,000p kind of like multiple something hertz refresh rates that we're dealing with. Like it's using the technology by and large for good. That being said, so like well done there. It was a, a good way to get to get the camera down in the action with the guys and keep everybody safe. Part of my problem was is that i that's the only thing that really kind of took me out of it is how safe I felt everybody was. not that I want like lack of OSHA oversight or anything like that in the workspace. I don't want anybody to get hurt but like or or to be at risk, but if you look at um it we just watched Full Metal jacket last time they were knocking buildings over and lighting them on fire for set dressing. Uh, If you look at a movie like Tora, 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 there's, you know, literal zeros flying through the sky and strafing Hawaii, like in like planes are getting actually blown up on the ground. Um, It's, you can still tell the difference. And I, and I, I think that the movie going public in general uh, is getting desensitized to this technology in filmmaking, um, but like if you if you're a movie nerd like I am, I still have the preference for practical effects, and when they're not practical effects, I just don't have quite the same buy-in. It 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 does sort of like break the
1: verisimilitude. the artifice that's what i think of it as is the artifice of the film and practical effects are much better at not breaking that and digital effects are much worse at doing so
0: i mean and these were really good digital effects like i don't want to take anything away from them you know like you like you said earlier dan like it's tough to tell if there is that mountain in bulgaria or if it's like half of that mountain and then they just like put a mirror at the top and like shown it back down to us to make it look Mm -hmm. twice as Mm -hmm. huge. Like, right. But with a computer, uh, you know, so it's, I'm not saying that anybody did their job badly. I just wish that they had either had the budget or the capability or the desire to, to do it differently. Yeah, and
1: this, this budget, let me be clear. This filmmakers have said, Less than $5 million was spent below the line. No yeah, way. $5 million below the line, which which means, for those who don't know, below the line means the actual cost of producing the movie. It doesn't include ads or marketing or any of that stuff. So that's uh, – because this IMDb, I think, lists – and Box Office Mojo lists this at an $18 million budget, but th- – that's
0: a small budget. Even that is tiny. Even with the eighteen million dollar budget, is but yeah, yeah, five like,
1: million is what they've said that it was less than that to pro- to produce the film.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's why they had to kill uh, Orlando <laughs> Bloom about twenty minutes.
1: <laughs> we can only pay you for right. this they much. Only, his
0: his contract was up. We only got you for three days, Orlando. <laughs> exactly. Let's go.
2: Okay, so I'm going to press you a little bit, Liam. I don't want to stay on this point for too long, but um, which effects in particular took you out of it? And which ones would you have done differently? And I'd say that just for context and perspective, coming from a place where I feel very much like you, like I'm a huge, huge proponent of practical effects. And I hate when digital is done the wrong way. And in my opinion, digital works much better when it's done to accentuate things and clean things up and put a light somewhere and, and, or like, you know, uh, extend a hallway, something like that, as opposed to the full effect. And we'll get into this in other films, I'm sure, because I talk about it all the time, but, and you gain so many advantages when you do practical, right? The actors don't have to do all this other pretending other than their actual acting job. Uh, because you're actually building the spaceship or building that house or you're putting them in a real place so i never felt that way in this film even though i come from a similar mindset as you so what specifically did you see here that kind of pulled you up
0: in the big battle in particular there were a lot of explosions that were happening near the guys that i was like that's that's digital dust cloud, hmm.
1: and those are the hardest thing to replicate an explosion because of the light, and exactly the sound, and all of that.
0: The light, the sound, the 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 actual explosion itself of like the the dirt getting kicked up. Like you have to do all that kind of physics via computer, Um but also then like the person running through the dust cloud isn't going to it's not going to all interact the same way you know what i mean and i and i think i noticed it most uh there was a point where caleb andrew jones's character is carter he He is carter
2: specialist carter
0: specialist carter ty carter when he was running out and there was an explosion and uh, He took cover behind a thing sort of like right after the explosion went off and there was like dust.
2: The explosions he's running. So these big things you see, just to explain for people who haven't been around them, um, that they use to build sort of contain berms. They're called HESCO barriers. And they're these giant like reinforced cardboard constructions that have – um sort of like, it's like chicken wire on the outside, but it's stronger than that. It's a little bit thicker. And then you fill those with dirt. So those are great to take cover behind and they're great for concealment, And but they, they protect you. So yeah, there's a scene where he runs into one of those and I think there's an explosion to his left and then there's a dust cloud all over the camera. I think that's the scene you're talking about. Yeah,
0: and, it's, and it just didn't, I, I, I could tell that that explosion wasn't actually there or if it there was there it was like a little guy it was and, augmented yeah and then it was like augmented with digital dust C- especially considering their budget it's not like they had like peter jackson going in with WIDA studios to like make all of the taliban guys individually move with their own personalities but like with the budget that they had again i don't want to take anything away from them i think they did a really good job i wish they had the budget and the time and the inclination to go in and do it right. Part of that might be the fact that 2020 is a weird time. Like 2019-2020 is a weird time to make this movie. Just with everything. And to in, like not to backtrack and go into the uh the political implications of the movie of which there are very few. Um but like the lack of politics in the movie is kind of a political implication in and of itself. Like that you're going to make this movie in 2019, 2020, just to tell the story without any additional editorializing. To be clear. You know what I mean? Is, is weird. They shot this in 2018
1: and 2019. This wasn't something that didn't, it didn't release until 2020, but it was something that was filmed earlier. And
2: and when did the pre-production and planning right. start, right? Like, so this happened in 2009? It happened in 2009.
0: I, imagine, I don't know when the original Jake Tapper interviews happened.
2: I would guess that the very beginnings of this project were only – Probably four or five years after the battle, I would guess, something like that. So, I mean, the answer to the question, why is this happening now, might also
1: just have a lot to do with practical implications and projects that fell And like I talked about earlier, this movie was originally supposed to be done years ago by Universal with, let's take a second here, Sam motherfucking Raimi?
2: Yeah, that is Directing
1: this? I mean, I, I haven't seen all of Sam Raimi's films. But I have seen a lot of them.
0: Do you hate them? I love them. I'm not a fan.
1: I And I can understand why you're not. I, I'm really into cheesy, bad movies, so I well, can give them uh, a lot of a lot it's of the
0: Spider-Man of movies that I couldn't stand. Uh,
1: yeah, I understand. But Evil Dead is a classic. Come on, let's all recognize the Evil Dead movies are great. Um, how the hell would he have made this movie? Like, I've never seen him do like a straight drama so I'm glad that the movie didn't go through with him but I think that was part of the delay was that you know they had a plan they were going to do it and then they had to shop it around and I think from what i looked at there were three or four different production companies they tried to go with uh, some smaller indie films and it was finally when millennium picked it up that it actually gained some steam so it's entirely possible that this movie would have come out if it gone through with the original director and team
0: i years ago. would have loved to have seen this come from an early paul greengrass
1: oh he would have been
0: great like I don't know if you guys have seen. It. I I know I have it on the list. Well, he did. I'm um, he did the Bourne movies, and he did United ninety three. But the first thing I saw him do was a movie that I put on the list called Bloody Sunday, and it's about uh, a, a an incident that happened in Northern Ireland uh, in the seventies that was uh, it's a civil rights march for Catholic rights and. There was a lot of tension building up around it and the British sent in the paratroopers and somebody opened fire at some point, but it was all protesters that ended up getting shot by the paratroopers and like seven people were just gunned down in the street. Uh, It's done in a very, uh, almost like drama kind of style and it reminds me of this in a lot of ways and like there's not really a protagonist like there kind of is but not really and you don't get in close with a whole lot of people but I feel like that I, I feel like it's a little bit better done in a similar genre um not it doesn't have the splody factor that this one has where things just go
1: the movie I was thinking of was the 22nd of July about the Norwegian terrorist attack by Anders Breivik. Mm. And that's what that was one of his more recent. And also, he's apparently doing 1984 next. Oh, uh... but I could see how Greengrass would have really captured this because I think him and... Um, rod lurie have a pretty similar style and that they really love to dig into the realism of things and try to show it and bring you into the moment as opposed to like you are the viewer it tries to make you feel like you're there
0: but like with something like bloody sunday like you watch it and you're like how is some how is this camera guy pulling focus Through all, like, how is everything that's supposed to be in focus in focus as they're running through the streets of Derry, like, just filming all this chaos with the shakiest of cams? But because this one had such a clean digital look, I never had that same sort of thought about the camera guy who's doing this one. You know what I mean? Like, everything felt too digital to me and not enough
2: mechanical. So. I found a review on IMDb right on the front of this film page um, that was great and really well written by uh, apparently an army veteran who did uh, one tour in Afghanistan and one in Iraq. Obviously, I don't know him. It's a username. I can't verify it, but it doesn't seem like the kind of thing that someone would invent. And it addresses a lot of things that have come up. So I'm going to we're going to close here, but I'm going to give up my closing time to kind of read this statement it's called finally a movie that's accurate is the title i did two combat deployments to afghanistan and one to iraq i can tell you without a doubt this movie is the most accurate representation of fob cop life soldier lingo and to an extent the combat most reviews i've read complain of subpar dialogue and not a clear story as to what was going on prior to the attack but i bet that most of the reviews are from people who have never been to war In war, dialogue between soldiers is not interesting. It's dark, unfiltered, and usually disgusting. We degrade each other, fight each other. We say things so offensive and disgusting that most people would think we have issues. In war, you also don't always have a clear-cut mission that you can make into some grand Hollywood story. When you deploy, you're supposed to find bad guys and help locals. That's it. Those hoping war has some interesting story will be disappointed. You sit around bored, exhausted, missing home, working out, eating garbage food, pissing tubes or bottles, first movie I've seen that showed the bottles, burn your own crap, watch movies, go on patrol, and maybe get shot at. Every so often you get a big mission where the combat gets intense. Then it's rinse and repeat. That's how it is, and I'm sure prior to the attack, that's how life on Keating was. This movie depicts life in the military so accurately that I was like, my gosh, finally someone did it. They got it right. So to anyone reading this, this is as real as you'll find until something else is made. All those who talk smack about it are idiot keyboard warriors. I'm not pointing any fingers at Liam. Again, I was going to read this before Liam made his comments anyways. The combat itself is good, explosions look real, even the CGI ones were okay. None of that dumb fireball explosion crap, the dust and smoke generated from shooting and explosions to the point the soldiers in the movie were coughing from it was legit. Now I wasn't in this battle, but I've been in my fair share of fights and I can tell you that tracer rounds aren't as fruitful as you see here. Most of the time you get shot at and have no idea where it came from except maybe a general direction. Muzzle flashes are also hard to see unless it's at night and you could see them all over this movie. Usually you just see dust or smoke from where they shot, not flashes. But Hollywood has to do this for effect, as it does make firefights look cool, and without seeing tracer bullets whiz by, it takes away from the intensity. Also, the soldiers were able to yell and talk to each other from long distances. Yeah, that doesn't happen. War is ungodly loud. You have to be screaming in a dude's ear to hear you. When the air support showed up finally, how it was being controlled didn't make sense, but that's just me being nitpicky, as not many people know what the hell is going on with that. The tactics were decent, You could tell there was some military advising for sure, but some things didn't make sense. Not sure if that's how it happened or just Hollywood. Overall, if you want to watch the most realistic depiction of how the war in Afghanistan is, this is it. To all the naysayers saying this is garbage, hate the way the soldiers talk to each other, or wish there was a more clear story mission, you obviously have never been there. Now, again, I'm not calling Liam out whatsoever. It's just that he brought up some of these points, and I was going to read this anyway, so I felt it was a good time to bring it up. So I'll finish my closing statement and uh, say that I think the filmmaker accomplished what he was going for here. Again, if you zoom in and keep, keep it kind of tight and stay in your lane and realize that what they're trying to do is tell the story of these guys who died in this battle and their friends who survived that they saved really wanted that story told. I would say that they accomplished what they were setting out to do. Um, And then whether I like the film, you know, honestly, the first time I watched it, the first 15 minutes, I'm like, okay, this is going to be some macho garbage with a bunch of hot dudes running around, you know, smack playing grab ass or playing gay chicken or whatever. And, and then after a while, the intensity started to hit and I just got completely sucked in for me. And I'm not even an action movie kind of guy. Like those aren't my favorite kinds of movies, but this is a very specific type of realism that just sucked me in. And I was not bored for a second watching any of it even my second time around noticing little details and everything um so yeah i really like this
1: so if when we talk about if the director achieved what they wanted to achieve i think he absolutely did because everything i read about this was this was very much a movie made to be realistic make the audience feel as though they were there be something that military um, personnel, both veterans and active and their families could watch and get some, a real perspective on what these folks are going through. And from what I read, that is the feedback that the filmmakers and Jake Tapper got was that they could show this to their families and be like, this is what it's like for me when I'm in the middle of the shit. This is an accurate depiction of a firefight of the intensity and craziness that's happening. And I think because of that, I think the director really did nail what he was going for, because as someone who is obviously not a veteran, never been in Afghanistan or anything like that, I still felt like I was there. When I'm, when I was watching it, it felt like immersive would be the word I'm looking for, I think. And I could sit and be like, okay, I can see how this would be affecting in both positive and negative ways and how terrifying these situations would be. And despite any other issues I had with the movie, I, 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 I thought that part of it was really well done. And that's, I think, a really hard thing to do with a war film. It's really hard to make the audience feel like they're there and not have it be like you feel like you're in a war movie versus being you are in the actual war itself. Those are two very different feelings. And I would say something like Saving Private Ryan is much more you are in a war movie, a dramatized version, whereas this is much more the reality of the situation. And whether or not I liked it, I feel really on the fence about that because I thought it was a great depiction and I thought it was very interesting. And I was fascinated with learning about the battle itself and with all of these guys, like that part of it, I really liked, but the craft of it. The Filmmaking is great, but oh God, the acting. Oh God. <laughs> like, real mixed bag. Real mixed bag. I thought Scott Eastwood just really, just, he was not the best person for for this role. But overall... I think I liked it and I think I'll probably watch it again after maybe I read the Jake Tapper book interest. I think the film was good enough that I want to read the source material. And that's a big compliment because my reading list, like I said before, is about three miles long. (laughs) And this is, this was a good enough film that interested me that I will bump it up and probably try to get to it within the next month or two. Liam, what did you think?
0: Uh, I would like to start by saying that I actually read that guy's review after I saw this movie the first time, which was a few months ago, Uh, and I thought well enough of the movie to add it to our list as a essential piece of modern war cinema, and I think it is very relevant to the conversation that we're having uh, just in general with this project. Uh, I think it's a good installment in... The larger history of of war movies, I think this is a a really good example of where we're at right now um it It feels very much of its time uh, which is a good thing if you're if you're a war movie you know with a a conflict that we're technically still in and anyway
1: that's uh, its own discussion, liam don't get excited that's its own
0: discussion. And I'm great at sidetracking myself. But sure, I mean, I'm comfortable being a keyboard warrior on this. Like, I've never been to war. I'm never going to be to war. No branch of the military wants my fat ass. Like, there is absolutely no echelon of any kind of hierarchy where somebody's like, maybe we should get Liam. Like, the grunts don't want me. The command doesn't want me. The generals don't want me. I and the feeling is mutual I have absolutely no interest but uh what I am interested in is movies uh and in this particular instance I'm still not sure if I can accurately judge if the filmmakers did the job that they set out to do because I don't know what their intention with it was Um, if it, if the intention was to make a movie that military members and military families would be able to relate to and see as familiar and authentic and realistic, and that was what the point of the movie was, then they did their job if the point was to tell the story of these men and the sacrifices that they made and give them the recognition that they deserve in most of the cases, I don't know if it actually did the thing, you know, like it's like I said earlier, it struck me as, as being more of a story of how these medals were won than the men who won the medals or the, or how these soldiers were killed rather than the soldiers who were killed in this action. Um, and I think that to a certain extent, that's gotta be a, 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 a mark against the movie because I can't, you know, I have a hard time telling most of them apart the ones who I can visually tell apart, I have a hard time remembering who had which name. And when we're talking about people that deserve recognition, that shouldn't be a problem that I have. Go through the the, the list of characters and pick out any guy. Any guy and describe them to me without telling me what they looked like or which metal they got or what they did like what are they like tell me something about them and this really didn't do that job you know it's like the only one who really got any kind of uh, and why I personally I know we've said there's no protagonist but I think the protagonist is Ty Carter he's the only one that you can really say went through any kind of arc narratively in the, in the story. And he had the best actor in the movie. He portraying him, he had all of the, the, the few emotional punches that you get in this movie all come. Like if you see Caleb Landry Jones's knees buckling him, that's him carrying this fucking movie like on his back up the hill and like running with it because that dude is real good and he is great in this movie there are like all of the best parts are him you know like the the callback to uh you're not gonna die you're dying of fucking cancer hey but you're not gonna die okay you stay with me okay no you're not no you're not Fucker, you're dying of cancer remember you're dying of fucking cancer come on put your arms around me like i love that for multiple reasons it told me who the guy was who he had the conversation with about burning shit giving you cancer uh and it being funny that he thought he was going to die of cancer like way back then that gave me some relative information on that guy but like before that i couldn't have told you who he had that conversation with and the, the thing that I think was the most interesting line to me and it, uh, in the movie line of the movie for me is when he's talking to the, uh, the therapist at the end, the psychologist, and she's like, he's talking about how he couldn't save him. And she said, Oh, yeah, he was he was your friend. And he goes, no, he wasn't. because like they actually didn't like each other. And he and being friends was never even on his radar. I thought that was really telling about the mentality and how the the. More so, Dan, than I think even the the conversation that you brought up about, like, how he can call me this and I can call him that is like, you call me that, I'll fucking kill you. I'll save you in a firefight, don't get me wrong, but I will beat your ass into dirt. Like, I think that one line from Caleb Landry-Jones summed that up more succinctly and more with with a whole lot more emotional punch just really tells you what this relationship is with these guys um, in a beautiful way. Don't get me wrong. I have no intention of being one of them, but I got mad respect for them and they, their story deserves to be told, but I think it deserves to be told better than this movie does it um, is, is my, my fair enough. So,
1: so did you like it?
0: I kind of liked it, I I loved Caleb Landry, Landry Jones. Like if you watch this movie and you're not a military person, watch it to watch Caleb Landry Jones just fucking do the work. You know, he really showed up to work to make this movie. And if you're not a military person and you're looking for a reason to watch it, there's your reason. All
2: right. Well, folks, uh, what you're hearing is us struggling to wrap an episode where there's a lot to talk about. And, you know, we're, in this project, we're still getting to know each other and, and kind of our opinions, et cetera. But we're certainly not going to shy away from disagreements and and uh, talking about films from different perspectives. I will say real quick that I think you glossed over the great bit with the guy looking at his picture, describing what he's going to do with his girl. And then it ends up being this big it dog. It was cute as I don't know who that was. I don't know who that guy was. No, you're right. You're right. <laughs> you're right you're right it was like not well developed into a character but I right? love that, the that moment
1: where it breaks in um, a picture and you're just like oh it's so much cuter now great.
2: we were cracking up it was great um, okay so we gotta wrap this up but um, we did want to take a second to thank a few of our contributors um, right now so again as you guys have seen from sort of our intro this project really got started as a community-based project. And we're getting a lot of help from people on research for these films, um, technical advising, you know, all those things. So yeah, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to um, Mike Andrews, Dennis Myers, and Mike D'Angelo, who did most of the research for Full Metal Jacket and for this Outpost episode. We have other people that threw in comments here and there. Um, Jeff from... uh, Guns of Friendly Fire, I asked him his opinion on sort of the weapons in this. Didn't get to any of it, as I didn't in the last episode, because I'm just not going to list a bunch of weapons, but I want to know the information in case it comes up. So thanks a lot for the info. And thanks, everyone, for your help. Thanks, Mike D'Angelo, who's been working on our website and getting the podcast going, all the technical behind-the-scenes stuff. This really is not um, a three or four person project of course thanks to uh, nathan worth who's our strategic planner he's helped us stay organized and bounce ideas back and forth and he's been in a lot of these meetings we've been having about exactly how we want to do this show and how to provide the best product for you guys so thank you to everyone thanks to everyone leaving comments supporting us writing in you know if you if you want to see this show go further then you know review it on your podcatcher go on itunes leave it a review Um, or even just a rating, and and it'll start to spread and people will get the word. So we'll see you guys in the comments section on our group as well. Katie, you want to throw out a few uh, social media Absolutely. So if you're
1: looking to find Danger Close in other places, we have uh, locations on most of the big sites. We have both a a Facebook page for our podcast if you're not interested in in chatting with other folks. And we also have a great discussion group uh, that's already – banging and rolling and then we have a reddit which is at danger clo- r slash danger close pod we have a twitter which is at danger close pod and of course the very old-fashioned website which is dangerclosepod.com. and we have a nice contact function there if you would like to send us your thoughts opinions or movie suggestions you can fill out that easy little form and it will let us know what you think
2: and we'll take your corrections too. We're never going to be right about all the military stuff or all the history, so we're, we're doing our best. But yeah, please let us know what what uh, we screwed up and what we can do better.
1: And just be nice about it, <laughs> please. I'm
0: I'm always happy to read hate mail that is sent my way, so by all means, please uh, please keep that coming.
2: <laughs> all right, thanks everyone. We'll catch you on the next episode.